de la Halle. This is Carol. Akuriabe. This is Selena. Welcome to the Peace for Tales podcast. This is episode number eight. This podcast is not affiliated with the U.S. Peace Corps or U.S. government. All thoughts, opinions, and recollections are for informational purposes only and to allow listeners a chance to hear Peace Corps tales from RPCVs. Let's get to the tales. Today, I'm personally super excited because our invitee, her parents are Colombian, so I already feel a little bit of a connection there with, with our invitee. Of course and she you also got to serve in a neighboring country, which I thought that was going to be my service. She kind of stole it from me, I guess, a few years afterwards. <laughs> so yeah, Liz, uh, I'm super interested in hearing her story because she also lives in a very big uh, city in her hosting country, and I'm sure there's going to be a whole different... Uh, vibe from the, the story that the tales that we have had so far. So welcome to Peace Corps Tales. Gracias. Hola. Buenos dias. So yeah, my name is Michelle and I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Ecuador. Um, I was a community health volunteer there and I was in Ecuador for 10 months before I was evacuated in March of 2019 because of COVID-19. Can you tell us like the name of your city real fast and how big it was? Yeah. I So I was in Guayaquil, so which is part of the coastal region of Ecuador. So Ecuador is broken into four regions. You've got the coastal region, the Sierra region, um, the Amazon region, and then the Galapagos. So I was in Guayaquil, which has a population of roughly like 2.7 million to 2.9 million. So it is the most populated city in the country. It's pretty close to Quito. There's a little bit of a rivalry between Guayaquil and Quito, Um, but yeah, definitely an urban site for me there in Ecuador. I can't even imagine what is to serve in a city of 2.7 million. That to me, because I've never heard that, you know, we usually hear that volunteers stay in the smaller cities, even if it's a city is smaller or very tiny, tiny villages. So 2.7 million, that has to be like very overwhelming, isn't it? Yeah, it was. But I guess the good thing was that I really thrive in big cities. I have family from New York City. I was born there. Um, so I really love big cities. Although going into Peace Corps and in Ecuador, most of the sites are rural. So my expectation was to get a very small rural site. Um, and then it turned out that I just got the complete opposite of that. But I was pretty pleased with it still. Awesome. I've always wanted to go to Ecuador. I don't know, before it was never on my radar. But now I guess I have to hop in a plane and go to Ecuador and visit. <laughs> Definitely. I hear that from a lot of people that they... They've like heard of Ecuador, but they don't really think of it as like a vacation destination. But um, I hope that changes because it really is just such a beautiful country. And especially for its small size, it's roughly the size of Colorado, but it's extremely biodiverse and it's just uh, incredible. Awesome. So you did mention that your service, unfortunately, was only for 10 months and it was cut short to this horrible pandemic. Can you tell us like how much time you had to pack and say goodbye and like, How did Peace Corps tell you that, unfortunately, you have to go home because of the pandemic? Sure. So I guess to start off, basically in February, I feel like it was when more talk of COVID was kind of coming out in the news and it was definitely on people's radar. But I don't think everyone really understood the gravity of the situation just yet. But going into March, it began to, you know, become more of a serious situation Peace Corps volunteers began to hear that like other uh, Peace Corps volunteer countries were being evacuated. 
And so actually the weekend that we ended up getting evacuated in Ecuador, I kind of had this feeling and I was talking to one of my site mates and her and I were just discussing the situation and I felt like I should maybe maybe go buy groceries and kind of get ready to hunker down at home because it was very possible that we would be put on standfast. And so for people that aren't familiar with standfast in the Peace Corps, it's basically part of like our emergency action plan. And so when you're put on standfast, you're prohibited from leaving site. So it's it's like a good idea to stock up on groceries, stock up on water and just be ready to not leave the area for however long that's going to be for. Um and so that Sunday, I think it was like March 13th, something like that, we got a call from Peace Corps staff saying that we were on standfast and to just obviously like stay inside as much as possible, get groceries, but don't don't have make any plans to leave basically. And then about an hour later, we got another phone call from staff saying that we were being evacuated. So it was very quick. It was like whiplash, really. Um, and yeah, basically, they said, pack all of your belongings, plan to not come back. We don't know what you're going to be able to take on the plane, but just pack everything just in case you can take all of your belongings and meet at the consolidation point the following day. There's like a pre-planned point where like certain clusters of volunteers will all meet at, meet staff at, and kind of like go through the next stage in the emergency action plan. Um, and my host mom actually wasn't in town um, because coronavirus is becoming a bigger deal there in Ecuador. Um, and my host mom in Guayaquil was elderly. She was in her mid to late 70s. She was staying with family in a near nearby town just to kind of like be a little bit safer because, you know, we were in such a populated city. So she wasn't home. I wasn't able to say goodbye to my host mom um, or my counterparts because the logistics of being in such a big city, it's like my counterparts lived like spread out throughout Guayaquil. So it wasn't like I could just walk down the road and say goodbye to them. You know, if I were in a rural site, I think it would, would have been much easier to do that. So it was really hard because it was so fast. Like I said, we got a phone call nine, ten o'clock at night, had to be packed and ready to go the following day. And I wasn't able to say goodbye to my host mom or host family or my counterparts. So it was very difficult, I think. there was It felt like there wasn't a lot of closure, I would say. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's just like a few hours to disrupt your whole life that you have built for the last 10 months. And then all of a sudden you're like back to, okay, I don't know, what am I going to do, right? Yeah. I can't even imagine that feeling. It was insane. And uh, God, it makes me emotional even now just thinking about it because it just was really, really hard. I just remember like feeling so intensely about it and like going in the shower and just like bawling my eyes out and getting a phone call from my site mate and my friends nearby. And we were just in disbelief, really. Yeah, it was difficult. I didn't even think I would feel this way still, but yeah. No, we, we want that, you know, it's part of your service. I'm a crier. So okay, good. I think crying <laughs> is just, it shows you how really, how much you really care about your community and your host and families and it just shows that you went with a full heart and it's beautiful to see that you know and I think I'm not crying right now because I cried my eyes out yesterday I had to go through a very emotional situation so I'm like dry out today <laughs> otherwise I think I'll be crying with you so don't feel bad <laughs> okay good I think I, I was just really invested in my service and in my community I know not everyone has that same experience and I'm just, I was so grateful that I had such a positive Peace Corps experience and that I loved my host family, loved my site, loved what I was doing. And so to have that all of, have all of that change so quickly and not get that closure was just really devastating. 
Um, and even now, like being home for six months, which seems crazy to me because I was only there for 10 months. Um, it's just been hard dealing with that. Um, I, I want to ask you, how was that trip back to the States? How long was that trip for you to go back home? And how did it feel like, you know, getting to the airport and getting back in the plane? Yeah, it was just a whirlwind, honestly. So like I said, we got the phone call the next day we had to meet staff. Um, I was in, uh, like in the coastal region, like I said, so volunteers that were in the Sierra and Amazon had to meet at a different consolidation point. So the people I was meeting at um, our consolidation point were volunteers kind of in the area or within a few hours of the area. And just as soon as I saw another volunteer, I just like immediately started bawling my eyes out because I don't know, it just kind of hit me. It's like seeing everyone with their suitcases, everyone was just kind of in a down energy um, it was like good to see volunteers, but of course we didn't want it to be under those circumstances. Um, so that was very difficult, but I don't know. I think we kind of treated the last day in Ecuador. And then when we all arrived in Miami, we spent one night at a hotel there before we took our respective flights home and we kind of treated it like a party in a way. So it was like, <laughs> well, we have to leave. Like we have no choice. Literally, we, we, we just have to go back to the United States right now. And so there was definitely celebrations and crying and laughing. We kind of took over the hotels too, just because it was so many volunteers in one like small space. So like I was sitting down having some drinks with other volunteers, my friends downstairs in a bar. And then I looked up and I could just see like volunteers going from room to room, hanging out with each other. And I think it was, it was kind of nice too, I guess, like that was as close to closure as we were going to get. And so I think we all just try to take advantage of those last moments with each other. And then at the airport, it was kind of the same thing. It was a bit chaotic, but um, I think we we're just happy to have one more time together. Okay, so Michelle, you were in Miami partying life up. <laughs> I know Miami. <laughs> yes, inside the hotel room. <laughs> I think Peace Corps volunteers tend to do that. They just tend to like overrun any place they go to. Whether it's a restaurant, a cafeteria. It's true. And I hate to be like those. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> I hate to be the, the loud Americans, but that's how it was. And also our flight from Guayaquil didn't get into Miami until like after midnight. I want to say it was like one in the morning or something. And then we all had to like wait for our baggage at the airport. And then Peace Corps staff in Ecuador had tried to arrange for a bus to come get us all and bring us to the hotel, which was nearby. But in typical Peace Corps fashion, like, of course, that didn't happen. It wasn't going to be so easy. We can't just transport like 150 volunteers with all of their suitcases on one small bus. So in the end, we just all tried to take like individual Ubers to get to the hotel, which was like a mile and a half away. Um, but by that time, when we were trying to check in to the to the hotel, it was like three in the morning. So it's not like we could go out or anything. We we're completely exhausted physically and emotionally. But of course, we still found time to to go to each other's rooms and just kind of like live it up for one more night before we had to go back home and face reality. Right. I, I think facing that reality had to be like very because even when I came back, my reality took me like almost seven months to be like, OK, oh I'm not in Peace Corps anymore. So I can only imagine what you had to do overnight, you know? Yeah. I was going to say like this is TMI, but so in Ecuador, I don't think it's the same in Colombia from my experience visiting, but in Ecuador, you can't flush toilet paper down the toilets. You have to put it in like a little trash bin next to the toilets. Oh yeah, it's the and same here. 
Okay, okay. I swear, like, I just could not get used to that for, like, a solid two months or so. Like, I kept wanting to put toilet paper in the trash bin next to my toilet, you know? And, and so it was just, like, so weird, the little things that you didn't think about. I just became so accustomed to that in Ecuador and trying to adjust to living in the United States again where that's not necessary was definitely interesting. Yeah, it's all about the little things and the little moments and the little, you know, customs that you adapt to. I know you are a little bit emotional, but can you give us a little bit of details about how was your coping strategy about being home and like realizing that, you know, Peace Corps came to an end very abruptly? I I can't say that I had like a specific coping strategy, which is funny because in Peace Corps, like during all of the medical presentations, the staff try to get you to like build coping strategies for service because it can get lonely. Yeah, like yeah. things happen. But I just could not get in that mindset being back home. And I think it just wasn't easy in any way because it was so sudden. And then there was a worldwide pandemic, you know, Um So I definitely just felt depressed and numb for for a long time. I think I just kind of like ate my feelings. I, you know, there I had American food again, so definitely took advantage of that. <laughs> hey, those work, right? Those at the end of the day, those on company strategies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I just tried to stay positive by talking with other Peace Corps volunteers and just leaning on each other even though we weren't physically in the same location anymore. Um, we could still reach out to each other. We had we had a couple of um, like Google chat calls, Zoom calls, just to kind of stay in touch with each other. Um, definitely like leaned on my boyfriend a lot who had been like living in the United States throughout my Peace Corps service. Um, but it wasn't easy. And I can't say that I coped with it all that well, to be quite honest. It, it was just difficult. And Even now that I still like cry when I talk about it extensively, I think that just kind of shows that like I'm still holding on to some of that emotional turmoil from the evacuation. So no specific coping strategy. I think I just cried a lot, you know, and <laughs> ate a lot of food. <laughs> okay, so switching gears, now we kind of want to talk more about your actual service throughout Ecuador. Um, but first, why did you join Peace Corps? Why did I join Peace Corps? So... I think it was a number of reasons. I I didn't have anyone that I knew growing, growing up that was a Peace Corps volunteer, but I had heard of it before. I think I've always loved to like read and travel and like through my passions, I guess, traveling just always seemed like a goal of mine. And I always loved like that cultural exchange. So for me, Peace Corps seemed like a really great opportunity to be able to immerse myself in another culture and get to share my culture as well, my American culture. So that was one big aspect of it. Um, I, I also wanted to work on my Spanish. So my parents are Colombian, Colombian American. And so I, I wanted to kind of connect with my Latin roots as well. So I was looking at where I could serve where that might be possible. Um, but I didn't necessarily want to serve directly in Colombia. And so I was looking around to see what my options were, um, and came across Ecuador. They had community health positions as well. And I have my master's in public health. So that was like another plus that I could kind of use my public health background throughout my service. And I wanted more experience like in the community doing community out outreach within public health. So Ecuador just seemed like the perfect mix of everything that I was looking for and being able to do that in Peace Corps and really represent the United States in a positive way just seemed really valuable for me at that time. 
Yeah, I will say I definitely uh, feel with you about wanting to learn Spanish to like go with my heritage because I'm Mexican American, but I'm like second generation on one side, fourth generation on another. So we never spoke Spanish in my household. And it was one like it's always been a mission of mine to like eventually learn how to speak Spanish. And Peace Corps was one where I was like, okay, like I want to try to really go to a Spanish speaking country so I can learn. And unfortunately, I wasn't given those options. But I just remember being like, oh, God, that would be like such a great opportunity. But I had the old application status. So we weren't allowed to really choose a specific country and project in order to like be our specific area. Okay. I remember that. You didn't get that opportunity. No, but it is like interesting that like you kind of had the same mentality where you just want to go and like speak it more so you could get. I'm sure you speak it more than I do for sure because <laughs> period, but <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest, like, even though so my my father was born in Colombia, raised in Colombia, my mom was born in the United States, but her parents were Colombian. And she also spent a lot of time in Colombia. So she's bilingual completely. But I didn't grow up necessarily speaking it. Um, although my father always spoke to me in Spanish, I would respond in English. So I did feel like part of my identity was kind of missing by not having that full like fluidity in Spanish. So it was definitely a big goal of mine to improve my Spanish. And I entered PST with an intermediate high placement. So I could definitely like hold a conversation, but I was going to make a lot of grammatical errors and like maybe it would take me a long time to get my point across. But by the end of my 10 months in country, I um, got to advanced mid. So I really improved a lot. And that was like we definitely got language training during PST, but it's more so it's not like we're working on grammar specifically. I mean, depending on your the, the level you're at. But once you're at that intermediate level, you're more so working on like conversational skills. And how are you going to be able to ask, you know, how to catch a bus or where there's a bathroom, things like that. So um, it was interesting to see how quickly my Spanish did improve just by being completely immersed in the language and culture there in Ecuador. So I'm really grateful to, ha to have had that opportunity because now my Spanish is a lot better and I feel more comfortable with it. So I miss being able to practice it, actually. Yeah, I can completely understand because like me, I always found it very hard to learn another language. So that's why Spanish like never really happened for me. <laughs> um, because like I know my friends, like anytime I would try to speak it, of course, people laugh. And that was one thing where I actually got really used to in Madagascar because you're new to learning and it's just part of it. And you realize that people aren't laughing at you. They're just laughing because they want you to succeed. But it's also funny because you sound like a toddler. And so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. One funny thing is that I think so preservativo in Spanish is condom. But of course, it it sounds like like when we were doing nutrition presentations, I think a lot of us who weren't familiar with the language yet. Oh, my God. I know what you're trying to say. No. Yeah. <laughs> We wanted to say like preservatives and foods, but some of us would say preservativo when really that was condom. And so definitely Peace Corps staff had to be like, okay, y'all, so preservativo doesn't mean what you think it means. Like, just be very careful. Save that for the sex ed presentations or just use the word condon. Uh, yeah, it's it's funny. It gets you in some like hilarious situations, but you learn from it. So I think it's a good thing even if you embarrassed yourself in the process oh, yeah. a little bit. <laughs>
I definitely agree. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, I don't know, Carol, was there any words that like if we said it really sounded like something else and we'd get in trouble? I don't think there was. In my case, it's a little bit backwards um, because of the English. Like my accent oh, sometimes yeah. gets really, really, really <laughs> thick. When she says focus, it sounds like she says <laughs> something else. Say it, Carol. Exactly. Say it. <laughs> so I like nobody had ever pointed out before, like, you know, because I always uh, all my friends before Peace Corps were Latino or like second gen first or second generation. So nobody ever pointed out that some of my pronunciation may sound a little bit different. So when I got to Peace Corps, uh, my friend Max was like, well, Carol, what did you just say? I was like, I don't know. I was saying certain thing. And then I, I became very aware of it. I was like, OK, I'm just going to use. I'm not gonna use that specific word, and I'm just gonna find whatever replacement so he doesn't make fun of me. And then there is one that is um, uh, the what was it the help uh, the oh, access. Remember Selena? This that sounds like I'm saying access, like your butt, but it's not that. Instead, it's like um, <laughs> like, no, like the community health workers. Oh, that was the acronym. Asses. Yes. See? It's AC. It's literally AC, but in French, you just say it with ASE. And so, oh, okay. yeah, every time she says, <laughs> I like asses, and we're like, what's up, Carol? <laughs> so I completely avoided using the acronym in French. So I just either said it in like CHW or Panentana uh, Fasalamana. Because it was just too much. I couldn't. I couldn't take it. Like, I've been bullied my whole life for my accent, but that oh. was just like too much for me. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's you have to find the balance of like not wanting to embarrass yourself, but also like part of learning the language is just making those mistakes and being called out on it. So you kind of just put yourself out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were um, heartless with her. We didn't let her get away with anything. <laughs> yeah, no, the funny thing is Managashi people didn't care because to them, I, they knew what I was talking about. It was just when I was with the other volunteers that they're like, Carol, are you talking about bots? I'm like, no. Oh, yes. <laughs> and then also peanuts because you know, always sound like... <laughs> like penis and like oh my god i'm never gonna say this so i was just leaving myself to use the malagasy word like vonju <laughs> safer that way and i think it's mainly because at some point i called them gringos okay and... they were hurt by that <laughs> yeah <laughs> i don't think you ever called me at least not to my face so don't start <laughs> oh i heard that word so much in ecuador so i'm like numb to it well, that's understandable because that's your version of like Vazaha, which is like what we were called as foreigners in Madagascar. Like once you get used to it, then you're just like, whatever. But from a friend. Mm. <laughs> okay. So what was one item that you were so happy that you packed? So I brought a lot of decorations for my room, whatever my room would look like. I wanted to like have some stuff that would just make it feel homier. So I brought like a couple of tapestries. I brought some postcards, some art and posters, um, just because I knew that like I was going to be in a foreign place and I just wanted to do whatever I could to kind of make my surroundings feel a little bit more like home. And I'm really glad that I brought that stuff because it did help a lot. And I got a lot of compliments on it from other volunteers or my host family. Um, so yeah, decorations, I think are pretty useful just to help you settle into your new space in country. 
Yeah, I know I definitely had to be creative at my house. I remember people would come and visit me and they're like, your house actually feels like a home. And I guess other volunteers just don't take the effort to do that. And that was kind of like one of my coping mechanisms of making myself feel comfortable where I'm like, I want to love my environment. So I'm not going to leave bare walls. No, (laughs) although you have to get creative, like in Tumbaco, I couldn't nail stuff into my into the walls. I don't know, like they were made out made out of like cement or something it was just like a very hard service so I had to like try and use my masking tape to like tape things up and then they would fall when it got like a little humid so it was a learning experience too but I was able to get some stuff up on the walls yeah mine was out of uh, bricks and cement as well and so I used tacks like somehow I was very patiently just like put in little tacks everywhere and it stayed luckily for the two years so I was like heck yes So let's move on. What was one item, though, that you wished you had packed? Yeah, yeah. So this is hard because maybe it depends on country, but like in Ecuador, we didn't know, obviously, where our site was going to be. Like we knew where we would be for training in Quito or outside of Quito, but we didn't actually know where our service was going to be. And so it's obviously hard to pack for two years when you just don't know where your site is going to be. And there could be different cultural norms in the site that you're assigned to compared to like the capital city or the climate could be completely different. Um, but I wish I had packed a French press for coffee because (laughs) I love coffee. Ecuador has amazing coffee, but the thing is, is that they mostly seem to drink instant coffee, which is totally fine, but it's just not the same flavor or strength. And so every morning, like, I I thought it was funny that my host family could drink coffee, like at all hours of the day, like seriously, it'd be like 10 PM and they would still be drinking this instant coffee. But it's just that it's not strong, I think. So like they're able to drink it and then just go to sleep right after. So for me, um, I went and after we got paid one day, I went immediately and took a bus to like a bigger city. (laughs) And I bought a French press. I bought ground coffee. I bought some good wine. I bought chocolate. And I just kind of like spent all of my stipend money on like these treats just to kind of help me feel a little better. I think I must have been feeling like a little bit down at that time. Um, but yeah, definitely wished I had brought a French press just so I could have that coffee. And then it ended up being kind of cool because I, I don't think my host mom had ever seen a French press before, even though they sold it in the grocery stores. Um, so like she was really into it. Like her parents would come over, my host grandparents, and they would want some coffee from the French press too. So it was kind of cool, like being able to share that with them as well. Like my method of making coffee. I'm going to give you my two cents about the coffee theory. Um, because it's the same here in Colombia, like, I don't know the population, like the percentage, but pretty much every single person drinks instant coffee. And it's because all the coffee that is grown in Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, whatever, is always exported. So we're always left with the worst, uh, quality or variety. So people are like, well, this is what we have. We don't know, we don't know any better, you know, and it's like, and it's the cheapest also in the market. So it's, it's easier. Exactly. But for example, here in Colombia, there is like a, a, this new wave of like coffee mentality of like what is a good coffee and like supporting, supporting like local farmers. So it's that it's changing a little bit, but I didn't know that until I came back from the States. Cause you know, like I grew up here. So I was like, oh yeah, instant coffee, that's what we drink. And then seeing the obsession in the States, I'm like, why are people so obsessed with coffee? I just don't get it. I don't either. And I live here. (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's true, though. Like, I just always grew up drinking coffee. I I love it. And I think that's so true that those countries that produce the coffee are exporting it all. 
it's big business for them. And so people are just drinking sort of the instant coffee, which like I said, it's not bad, but it's also not the same as like a freshly brewed cup of coffee. And it, it was difficult to find. I mean, in Guayaquil, it was easier for sure. There were more like artisanal cafes where you could get like delicious coffee. But as far as like the local mindset, I think it was definitely more on the instant coffee for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So yeah, that was my thing that I would, well, I would have packed. I wish I would have packed at least. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that would have been very heavy on your back though, wouldn't it? No, they're little. No, a French press is really small. Yeah. 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 yeah it was perfect. Oh, the little one. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, well, now that you're talking about my mom, like after, I don't know how many years, because my mom, I'm sure is like any hosting mom. She she used to drink like five cups of coffee every day. And I'm like, mom, what's wrong with you? And it's because it was the instant coffee. And now my brother-in-law um, got her one of those French things. And the now nice she's one. like, oh my God, I need my coffee. And it cannot be just like instant coffee. It has to be that one. And when she like... Yeah, and then when they uh, run out of, like, the ground coffee beans, she's like, oh, my God, I don't have coffee. I'm like, Mom, that, that is, like, instant coffee right in the covers. So now she's so fancy after years don't and years. Don't forget your roots. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, pre-service training is a huge part of our service, right? Because it's like, okay, they are preparing us to the unknown world. Can you think of, like, a really cool highlight or best memory uh, from your uh, PSC? Yeah, definitely. One that stands out would be the Pride Festival in Quito or Orgullo. Um, so this took place right after Ecuador's constitutional court voted to legalize same-sex marriage. And I think at this point, it was only the fifth Latin American country to do so. And Ecuador is like a, it's a deeply religious Catholic country. So this was really a big deal that same-sex marriage would be legalized, you know, throughout the country. And so being able to have Pride Festival there in Quito right after something so historic and monumental occurred was just really incredible. Like even now I get goosebumps from it because you just felt like this energy in the air. And it was just so much fun because a group of volunteers met up there. And generally Peace Corps volunteers are kind of prohibited from participating in sort of like political movements and things like that. But this was not the same case and they allowed us to attend the Pride Festival but it was just so much fun because obviously like everyone's all dressed up. There's glitter, rainbows, there are buses, music, chanting. Um, you could see like same-sex couples also like showing affection in public. And that may not sound like a big deal for us Americans, but truly it is a big deal in these countries. And yeah, like I said, just being able to celebrate that so soon after this like historic court ruling was just really incredible. I think it was such a cool opportunity for us volunteers to be in the country during this time. So probably for me, that was one of the highlights, I would say. That's so cool. I didn't know Ecuador had approved same-sex marriage. I think we had it for a few years. I don't know because I wasn't here, but that's huge, honestly, because Ecuador is very, like we here in Colombia are very Catholic, but things are changing a little bit, especially in the big cities. And I do feel like some more countries that are very close to us are a little bit more like conservative and more strict in certain ways. So just being able to witness that, I'm sure that was like, I don't know. I, I can't even imagine that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely had an impact on all of us. And then we could also see how it was going to also impact the lives of 
Ecuadorians there and people who are in same sex um, relationships and how it could also have the potential to kind of have a ripple effect in other Latin American countries that hadn't yet legalized same sex marriage. So that was really amazing. And it was also cool because during PST, you're kind of like you're not really interacting with other volunteers because most of them are obviously like at their sites in different parts of the country. But for Pride, a lot of festi- uh, a lot of volunteers from other areas of the country came to Quito to celebrate Pride. And so it was also a really good opportunity for us trainees to be able to meet some of the other volunteers and form those connections with them before we went off to site, because some of them would end up being our site mates, too. Can you give us a little bit of details about what were your living conditions throughout PSD during pre-service training? Sure. Do you mean as far as like structurally or just like day-to-day life, what we ate? Like more of like, for example, we had a host family for six weeks and then we went back to the facility for about a month to end our training. So kind of like, did you have a host family? Was it at a facility? Like, Sure. Well, that's so interesting how each country kind of does it differently. But no, for us in Ecuador, we stay with a host family for the entirety of pre-service training. And then once we get assigned to our site, we are also, we have to stay with the family at our site for the first six months. And some volunteers don't have any other option. Like they can't move out. So for the two years, they would end up staying with the host family. Um, But yeah, during PST, we all stayed with the host family. Youth and families and community health were put in two different communities outside of Quito. So we weren't in Quito proper, but we were in like parroquias um, outside of Quito. And I shared, I had one of the smaller host families, I think, because I know other volunteer or other trainees would have to share a bathroom with like seven people or like a big family. But for me, I was in um, like a little compound. So on the top floor was my host mom, my two host sisters and my host brother. And it was like a three bedroom house. It's pretty small. And I shared a bathroom with my host brother. And on the bottom floor of the compound was like extended family. So abuelas, tias, tios, other cousins that live there. Um, we had some roosters as well, kept us company. <laughs> um yeah, and it was it was definitely different. You know, there was like cement walls, a tin roof, you know, the the walls didn't reach up all the way to the ceiling. So it was definitely um a living environment that I was not used to, but it had its pros and cons. Um I had a washing machine, which was pretty awesome. I wasn't sure because some volunteers didn't have a washing machine and they were kind of doing it old school style, like on a rock with a bucket and water and soap. That's like our only option in Madagascar. <laughs> Really? Yeah. (laughs) I got lucky. Well, I I won't say lucky, but it just turned out that in Guayaquil, I also had a dryer, which is like unheard of because it's quite expensive electricity, you know, in Ecuador. But I had a washer and dryer in Guayaquil. But in Ecuador, or I mean, in Quito, I I only had the washing machine, which was nice to have. She had a bougie site. People said I had a bougie site, but hers was like next level. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man, wait till like you hear more about my Guayaquil host family house. Like it was really nice. <laughs> okay, so we know that you had a, a dryer. How was the transition from using just a washer to start using a washer and a dryer once you got to Guayaquil? <laughs> no, but seriously, how was the transition from like, you know, you had your host family and now you're moving to Guayaquil? What was that like? Well, first of all, it was just crazy because we had the swearing in ceremony at, I think it was like the ambassador's house. Like it was only symbolically his house. Like I, he didn't actually live there, I'm pretty sure. But it was at this beautiful, um, beautiful spot in Quito with like views of volcanoes in the background. Absolutely gorgeous. Um, everyone's dressed up to the nines. We've got heels and suits on and dresses. 
And then, like, seriously, like, as soon as the ceremony was over, they're trying to, like, get people onto the bus to, like, take them to the bus station. And people what? are changing on the bus. Because obviously, like, you don't – I had to take a bus that was going to be 10 hours long, you know? So I, I'm not going to be in my heels and jewelry and makeup for 10 hours on this bus to go to a completely different climate. So it was just very chaotic, I would say, like immediately after the swearing swearing in ceremony. But then otherwise, I was able to adjust pretty quickly. Um, like I mentioned earlier, I really love big city. So for me, it wasn't like a, a complete shock or anything. And also my home in Guayaquil was just very comfortable um, my host mom had been living in the building that we lived in for over 35 years. So she just really knew the area very well. She was so sweet and took me around to like all of her little spots, like where she bought her cafecito, where she would buy her queso every week. Um, this is where she got her empanadas. So she treated me really well and just got me feeling very comfortable in my surroundings so that I kind of had the confidence to go out and explore on my own. And I didn't feel too shell shocked or anything like that. I wonder, Carol, if like the reason why, because we got to stay in the Capitol for like an additional day, but the only reason why we got to stay in the Capitol after we swore in is because we had to go buy things, I think, before we separated to our different regions. But I guess maybe because you guys have host families and you guys don't have to buy anything for your future site. Do you think that's why they just like, as soon as you swear in, okay, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> well, some volunteers did like the volunteers that were going to be staying in the Sierra and Amazon region, they stayed in Quito for one more night at like a hostel or no, maybe it was with their host families or a hostel, but they did stay for one night. It was more so the people that were going further away to the coastal regions where we had to leave immediately because we had to catch a bus, get to the hostel like that was 10 hours away in the new in Guayaquil. And then from Guayaquil, you would either stay if your site in Guayaquil um, or take a bus to your actual site, which would be a little bit further away. Did they send any Peace Corps people with you to help with this transition or was it just volunteers? No. <laughs> oh, wow. So it was crazy. I think actually they ended up sending like the volunteer leaders. But even then, like, I don't remember. I think one volunteer leader, like one girl, her belongings ended up on the bus that we came from. So like she didn't have her suitcases. They didn't take it off the bus. And so... A volunteer le leader stayed back with her to go get her stuff, and then they would take a later bus to Guayaquil with all with just themselves to meet us all there. But it was very chaotic because we had been to the bus station once before. Like our host families were supposed to show us like how to do it, but you know, like that's difficult. Or the host families would be like, "Oh no, we need to go to this um this fiesta, so like I can't take you to show you how to ride the bus, but like you'll figure it out." So, but no, there was not like official Peace Corps staff there helping us figure it out. It was like, okay, we're putting you on a bus and here you go. Like, get there. Here are some directions we're going to give you and here's some cash. But, um, but that was it. So it was interesting. Oh, wow. I was just going to ask that. Yeah. But like you learned, you know, it ended up being fine. Wow. Okay. And I thought we had it hard, but we were like pretty much handheld compared to you. Oh, no, no, no. That did not happen. <laughs> we were driven in Peace Corps cars. And even that, you know, we, we were taken to banking towns, bought the stuff, and then they brought us to our houses. But I can't even imagine just being like, hey, go to the terminal and take to the flota to, I don't know, somewhere in Guayaquil and with thousands of people. Hey, I can't. I don't. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Literally, that's exactly what it was like. It was just chaotic. And then, of course, like 
when you're at the bus station, people see a big group of gringos with all of their maletas and they just, yeah, they want to get you on the bus. They don't even know where you're supposed to be going, but they're like, here, come on, sube, sube, sube. It was, it was very, very chaotic, but interesting. Oh my goodness. And I, sorry, I just thought of when we got to the hostel in Guayaquil, of course, it was a hostel with like three flights of stairs and no elevator. So we've got both of our suitcases trying to lug them up all of these stair stairwells just to be able to like go sleep. And we're completely exhausted after like swearing in and having to take a 10 hour bus ride to our site. So it was, it was a bit of a mess, but somehow we made it work. <laughs> okay. So going with that, I'm very interested to see what three of your highlights throughout your service may be. So can you kind of tell us three highlights that you had? So I think the first one that was like very important for me was just the connections I made, whether it be with my host families, my counterparts, coworkers, or other Peace Corps volunteers. Like that's something I will hold very close to my heart forever, just because I definitely feel like I made lifelong friends and families from this experience, which is so important to me because that cultural exchange is such a big part of the Peace Corps experience, I feel. And so I truly feel like I have a family in Tumbaco and I have a family in Guayaquil. I still talk with my host families. The other day, my host mom um, from Quito, she messaged me on Facebook Messenger, not even to talk about anything specific. She was just like, hey, Michelle, how are you? You know, so um, I'm still in close contact with both of my families. And I would say that's definitely a highlight, having those connections. Um, obviously, still talking with other Peace Corps volunteers. I had a couple of really close like site mates or other volunteers that were close to my site that I still talk to every week, basically. Um, so yeah. That was a highlight for me, just having those close connections with other people in country and now like being back in the United States, still keeping in touch with everyone. Let's see. Another highlight would be. So I think one issue, though, it, with with Peace Corps volunteers is we can kind of come into service thinking we're going to change the world. We're going to change the country. We're going to make such a big impact. The reality is that that's not going to happen, probably, to be quite honest, like you're not you're not going to change the world in two years. It's just really hard to do. But it is nice to feel like you are making some sort of an impact, whether it be like on a personal level or whatever. And there were a few times um, in Guayaquil, I like I said, I was a community health volunteer and I worked at an NGO that was it was basically like an HIV clinic. So we did pre and post HIV counseling and a lot of community outreach. And there were a few times when I was just getting started that people would tell me like, wow, I'm I'm so happy with the service I've gotten here. Um, thank you so much. Like they would basically relay to me that they, they got a lot of helpful information during our counseling sessions. And obviously like that's the whole point of me being there is really to, to put out this information and education in the community. And so whenever people kind of made it a point to vocalize that, it felt so good, I think, because it really felt like there was some sort of like tangible impact that was being made or when we would go to some of the hospitals or emergency waiting rooms and do presentations for people um, I would put a lot of work into my like posters with information and people like the moms would be like trying to get over one another to take pictures of of the like how to how to properly filter water or like different information about like breastfeeding for their children and so I think that was really awesome being to feel being able to feel like I was putting out good information and that I was able to connect with people um, or having women stay after stay after class, like during a presentation and ask for my phone number because they wanted to be able to text me if they had questions about about HIV or something like that. And to me, it, it meant that they were putting trust in me as an educator. 
um, and that they felt comfortable enough to be able to come to me if they did have additional questions. That's definitely a highlight for me. And let's see, one really awesome thing that I got to experience was New Year's Eve in Salinas, which is a coastal beach city. And it's just crazy there. Like New Year's Eve is such a big deal in Ecuador. And so every year they have um, these artisans create these uh, like paper mache type dolls. I forget what the word is exactly for what like what they are. But basically, they burn the Año Viejo by burning these paper mache dolls. And you just see these like giant fire pits of these dolls being burned and like heads and arms and they they make them into all different types of objects. So it could be like a doll representing a person or um, after COVID, they I saw online on Instagram that they had made like these like, I don't know, they look like viruses, I guess that was supposed to represent COVID. And there's um there's a big street, uh, Seis de Marzo in Guayaquil, where a lot of artisans are there and they're creating these like paper mache dolls and art all year round to sell. You know, that's a, a big way that they make money, which, you know, it saddens me because of everything going on. Like a lot of these artisans weren't able to create those dolls. And, you know, the future of it is kind of up in the air with, you know, January coming up, like what's going to happen? Are, are there going to be these celebrations? How are these people making money? And they're so talented too. Um, it's really cool being able to walk on that street in Guayaquil and see the people working on them all the time. I would say New Year's Eve with a group of volunteers. That was just amazing. Like seeing all of the fires on the beach, everyone having a good time, people dressed in white. It's supposed to symbolize like purity going into the new year, kind of like a fresh blank canvas. Um, there was like fire lanterns and just a general really good vibe. Oh, wow. That sounds beautiful. Like, oh, that sounds so cool. <laughs> it was. It was so much fun, honestly. Like, I don't think I've had like a better New Year's ever before. And I really mean that. Is it something where like you guys would eventually make your own as well if you ever wanted to participate or it's just like certain groups make it or what? Um, I think like anyone is free to try and make them, although I, they seem like pretty involved. Like I, do, I would have to really go out and try and find supplies and I have no idea how to make a paper mache type doll, but I would probably just want to support the local artisans um, and and pay them directly for their artwork. One of the volunteers that ended up coming on the trip with us, he got one made and he had like a Patrick from SpongeBob. So like we were, <laughs> we went out that night and we just had this like giant Patrick paper mache doll and before we burned him and threw him in the big fire pit, it really was just such a sight to see being on the beach and just looking down the long stretch of sand and seeing all of these like giant fires going on simultaneously. Yeah, it was incredible, really. Yeah, that sounds so cool. I wanted to ask, so what was your like top WTF moment? It wouldn't happen in the States at all. It's something where you're just like, wow, this would only happen because I became a Peace Corps volunteer and I'm now here. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting because my I thought about this and like my top WTF moment. In hindsight, now I could see maybe this happening in the U.S. because of all of the protests that have been happening, you know, because of like police injustice and Black Lives Matter. So now I think it could happen in the U.S., but definitely for me, it was being at site and being in Ecuador during the protests in Ecuador in October 2019. So just to like provide a little bit of context for people, in October, uh, Ecuador's president, Lenin Moreno, made a deal with IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And so I don't know the specifics of it, but basically Ecuador was going to be receiving some money 
And because of that, they kind of had to make some economic reforms. And so one of those reforms that the government decided to to put into place was ending subsidies on oil and gasoline. And obviously, if you're doing that, that means the price is going to rise. And it's not just on oil. It's going to mean that everything basically rises, the price of food, you know, um, bus fares. This really angered a lot of people in country and uh, it, it angered um some of the indigenous groups as well and their leaders mobilized you know their people all across the country and all of these protests began to to take place it was really heavily concentrated in quito but it did reach out to to other cities in ecuador and it got so bad that the government actually had to temporarily move the capital from quito to guayaquil so they basically like got all their staff got out of quito and were commanding from guayaquil so it was a very interesting time to be to be there in in Ecuador. But I remember one day I went to go buy an empanada in the city center because I lived right in the city center. So I would always try to take advantage of just walking around. And I turn around and there's this like giant military tank truck with a group of like soldiers, I guess, completely suited up in like all of their gear, helmets, masks on, guns in the back of the truck and it just like goes by on Nueve de Octubre which is like a, a main street in Guayaquil and it was just crazy because like I've never seen that you know I'd never like been to a protest previous to that or really even witnessed one of that size that was just like oh my goodness I, I don't know it was just like very jarring to see and then I was walking around like another day still when those pro protests were going on and basically, like groups of protesters would kind of swarm the streets. And so you would have bus drivers like trying to transport people, but then like a swarm of people would get into the road and block the roadway. And I remember one time this bus driver had to like, like I could see him in his bus just completely turning his steering wheel, trying to like avoid the protesters to be able to continue on his on his drive. And then people throwing objects and sticks. And it was just kind of chaos, really. But the funny thing is, is like, while there was all of this chaos going on in the city, some of it was like very orderly too. Like there would be the guy selling sandia, watermelon, in his little makeshift cart. Meanwhile, like masked protesters in the background are like throwing objects at police. So it was like just these two extremes. So it was really interesting. And what was also interesting about the situation too was that Nueve de Octubre, that street that I mentioned where a lot of the protests were taking place, the 9th of October was also Guayaquil's Independence Day, I think in 1820 from Spain. And so it was no coincidence that a lot of the protests were taking place on that street. It was very much like a symbolic act or gesture to have the protests there where they fought for independence, you know, for their city. And yeah, it, it was there was a lot of like this energy in in the air and you really felt like change could happen. And Ecuador, for better or worse, has had a lot of political unrest. I think they've had something like eight presidents in 13 years, which is kind of crazy. So we were put on standfast for a few weeks when all of the protests were really at their at its height. And I think some of the volunteers in Quito also had to be consolidated for a few days because it was just kind of a touch and go at that point. We, we really didn't know what was going to happen. Tires were being set on fire. You know, there was real destruction that was happening. Um, 
military people were being like held hostage as well in some parts of the country. So it was very intense to be at site during all of those protests. Yeah, wow, I bet. Was there ever a question of maybe you guys having to leave the country due to these protests? Or was it more of like, we're just going to go on standfast and evacuate those volunteers in the deep areas of this happening, but we'll be fine? So being evacuated was never out of the question. I don't think Peace Corps staff could ever kind of put that off the table because they only do that to protect us as volunteers. And so it was very much possible that things could get so bad that they would have to get us out of the country um, because also there started to be uh, shortages of food in the grocery stores and at the mercados. And so if volunteers can't eat or can't get to food, like, what are you going to do? If a volunteer gets hurt and they can't be transported to a local hospital or, you know, many volunteers don't live somewhere where there's like a, a well-equipped hospital right at site. So they have to be transported to like a, a hub city. Like Guayaquil would be one of them or Quito. Then, yeah, volunteers can't be there because if they break their leg and transport is shut down because taxi drivers and bus drivers are striking or because there are wheels on fire blocking roadways, then volunteers can't safely be at site. So I think staff handled it pretty well. Like they stayed in contact with all of us. They called us individually as well when we went on Standfast. Um, I didn't ever feel like we would be evacuated just because I think it was going to have to get like a little bit worse before they kind of went to that extreme of evacuating us. But it certainly was possible, I would say. Yeah, I, I just want to add my two cents because, uh, you know, I've been here in Colombia for a year now. And when the protests in Ecuador started it, Politically, like here, we are in a very, very bad shape right now. And we look at Ecuador and be like, hey, guys, if like they were able to stop Lenin from doing such a horrible decision with the FMI or like El Banco Mundial, whatever it's called. Um, so in November, our protests started kind of inspired a little bit on Ecuador. Um, and we were like full in protest and then Christmas came around and then everybody's like, oh, we're going to take a break because it's holidays. So no protest for now. It's novena time and Christmas and New Year's and vacation. So we're just going to retake next year. Um, and then the pandemic came back. But yeah, it's so true that they take yeah. a break. It's like, oh, no, we got to celebrate Christmas. <laughs> yeah. And then you were talking about like, you know, like you see this chaos because I, I did go to a lot of protests, which they are pacific. And then once the police show up, that's when chaos starts happening. But I'm not going to get into that too much. But it's funny because you were talking about, like, you know, you were seeing, like, the military and the tires being uh, put on fire and then people selling sandias. Here, it was very similar where, like, the first protest, it was just a lot of people coming out. And then as you're protesting, you see all these street vendors selling whistles and, like, trying to sell you the T-shirt with whatever chanting is happening. And it was just so funny because... You know, people are, they are just trying to make ends meet and yes. the protesters were just trying to change the country. And it's like such colliding word, you know, it's like, it was to me, now that you, like you bring it up, it's like, wow, it's the same pretty much in all Latin America. Cause I'm pretty sure it was very similar in Chile and you know, all these protests going on in so many different countries. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting to see that. It's so true. Like there's such like that business mindset, like we need to make money, especially because of the uncertainty, because I think in the end, they went back on the subsidies. But if they had kept that, it really was going to directly impact the lives of everyone. And also as volunteers, like as volunteers, we're making 
like we can definitely live well by the standards, you know, but it's still going to directly impact us. So there was confusion over the bus fares, the bus drivers and taxi drivers and the unions were, they increased the fares of the buses. And it, it was kind of in this gray area, like maybe the government isn't allowing this to happen, but we're still going to raise the prices right now, you know, before the subsidy is really put into place. And so if our bus fare normally cost 30 cents, but now it's going to cost 40 cents, like that does affect us as volunteers. If the cost of food goes up too, that's going to affect us too, because we only get so much to budget for food. And I think there was a lot of pressure on staff also to kind of, I guess, come up with a way of how they're going to get us more money because we're also paying our host families rent and food money. And so if the cost is going up for us, it's obviously going up for our families as well. And so we wanted to be able to compensate our host families too if the cost of everything was going to rise. Like we don't want them to eat the cost of that. There was like a, a lot of a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes during all of the protests. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty wild. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I think that'd be so weird. And I hope it doesn't happen here due to protests and stuff in the States anyway, because I'd never want to see a tank just like drive down a street trying to keep peace in a sense. Yeah, I know. I just happened to be that like on that street, there's like a some sort of like military post in a building. I don't know exactly like what they do there on Nueve de Octubre in the center of Guayaquil, but there's like a like a military office. And so even before the protests had happened, like I would see them in their trucks or I would just see like people suited up outside of the building, kind of just like watching guard. But I had never seen that before, like a big truck of them all suited up. So it was, yeah, the first time for me. Okay, wow. Okay, so I'm interested now to see. Sorry, that went like longer. But... <laughs> no, that's fine. So now we're going to like switch hopefully to a, a better moment in a sense, not as scary or weird. Um, But what was your top like OMG moment? And this is more of a recollection of like, that was your moment saying like, this is why I had joined Peace Corps to begin with. So I would say one moment that really stood out to me, and it still like stands out to me as a as a very good memory. Um, Like I mentioned, we volunteers weren't placed right in Quito during PST, we were kind of in surrounding areas. And so I would have like a 45 minute hour and 15 minute bus ride to the training center every day. And I just remember riding the bus one day and you know, it's a very mountainous area. There's like these like volcanoes and mountains everywhere. And one day I was listening to music, just looking out the window and I saw Cotopaxi in the distance. And it was just so beautiful. Like, I don't even know how to explain it. Just like in that moment, it just felt like everything kind of fell into place in my life. Like Peace Corps was something I had thought about for a really long time. I, I didn't know if, if it was ever going to be something that I like would bring t- into reality just for a lot of different reasons. And so being on the bus, heading to PST, seeing Cotopaxi outside, you know, just everything really felt surreal, but beautiful. And I just remember just having like immense gratitude in that moment for being where I was, despite like things having gone wrong in the past or, you know, what have you in my life, like just having that and being able to say like, I made that happen for myself was just really powerful. That was just like, oh my gosh, like I'm a Peace Corps volunteer or I'm about to be, I'm a Peace Corps trainee in Ecuador, like I'm learning Spanish, I'm on this bus by myself, like, I don't know how I did it. But I did it. And it was just, uh, it felt really good. That's a very beautiful memory. I like that. Yeah, it just stood out with me. And I'm, I'm a writer. So I'm always like writing down notes, you know, things that come into my head, anything I observe, because I just think it kind of helps like when you can look back on it later, just kind of helps you bring yourself back into that moment. And that was one that just stood out to me a lot. 
Yeah. Ecuador is just so visually beautiful. It has such extremes. Like you do see a lot of like of the poverty and those the effects of poverty there. But then it's just in such a stark contrast to all of the natural beauty there. Like it's just it's so green and then the mountains and then the tropical like coastal region. It's just incredible. So yeah, just beauty. Right? It's always about it's beautiful. the small things and the natural things. Yeah, I would say so. I am curious though, because like my stipend was enough for me to live in my small tiny town. Whenever I went to the capital, I would just use all my money like in three days. So how did you manage your stipend to be enough for you living in Guayaquil? Because I'm assuming Guayaquil is rather expensive compared to like other um, sites for uh, other volunteers. So did you get like a higher stipend than the regular, you know, like the more rural volunteers? And how did you manage to, to make it last? I don't know. I think it's hard. <laughs> for you, Carol, it was hard. For you, Carol, yes, it was hard. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> you got to get creative. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was asking, because when you, once you're in a big city, you have all this access to so many things. And it's really hard, unless you are really good with money, you can just spend all your stipend in two days, you know. And that's what I wanted to ask. How do you like kind of manage and learn to like manage your stipend so it would last to the, to the very end of the, of the month? <laughs> it depends on like the lifestyle you want to live, I guess. But yes, I think in Ecuador, they broke it down into like, three or four tiers. So the lowest tier, tier one would be like the most rural or like the cheapest sites for whatever reason, like food and rent are just very inexpensive. And then tier three or four was the most expensive. So that would be like Quito, Guayaquil and Cuenca. Those are the most urban sites that you could have there in Ecuador. And so we did get more money, like we would get all a base amount. And then depending on the tier that you were in, you would get a little bit more money to cover the increased cost of food and transportation. And what is interesting about being in such an urban site is you do have access to a lot more stuff. Like if I wanted to get sushi one day during lunch for work, I could do that. It was right there in the city. If I wanted to get like a bougie coffee at a coffee shop and meet up with another volunteer, I could do that. But it was going to cost me maybe like my daily allowance for food. I would say like I spent a lot of money definitely oof, on food. Like I hate to say it, but like just having that there was just very comforting to me. And like I mentioned earlier, I love coffee. So being able to like go to the local coffee shops was something I love to do and just like journal there or, you know, use the Wi-Fi and the air conditioning. Um, I definitely took advantage of all of the luxuries that an urban site gave me. But then you did have to be careful. And I think for people that are in the rural sites, in some ways, it's like kind of nice because you, maybe you have one restaurant you can go to. You know, so you really don't have many opportunities to spend all of your money, but then you can go and take a trip, you know, to one of the, like, so the capital, capital city or to Guayaquil, one of the bigger cities. And then you can kind of go all out for a weekend and like spend all of your money, like go see a movie, go to a restaurant, do whatever you want. So I think there's pros and cons to both. Oh, wow. See a movie. You guys had movie theaters. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah. I, I like saw a couple of movies. I definitely had a very different lifestyle compared to some of the other volunteers in the very rural sites or volunteers in the Amazon region. I wouldn't say one is better than the other. I just think you do you do get a very different experience. Yeah. Yeah, I um I took it to the extreme and because I'm always about like data. And so I had this whole Excel sheet that kind of broke down what I would allow myself to buy something with. 
And because of that, I was like so good with my money that I always had so much excess. Uh, but it also helped because I didn't date anyone in the country. So like, at least in Madagascar, if I had like a host national boyfriend, I would have known like I would have been paying for most of the stuff. Oh my and... God, Selena, I can't believe you just put me like that on the spot. Yeah, Carol, I'm calling you out because that's where most of your money went. <laughs> It wasn't just you, Palmy was the same way. She just like burned her money all the time on stuff. Well, she went all the way out though. I never went to the limits that she did. did. <laughs> but I mean, a boyfriend was expensive and so I was like, I'm, I'm cool being single, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a foodie, right, Michelle? I... Yeah, I love food, I love to eat. <laughs> I do too, Definitely. but more people are more into it than others. I do love to eat though, my sisters think that I eat too much. Anyways, I don't know anything from Ecuadorian food other than cuy, and I know because it's in the Colombian borderline where cuy is also very popular, but what is that one dish that you really, really love from Ecuador? Uh, okay, I don't know that I can pick just one because I was so blessed to be in the coastal region because the food is just delicious. It really is like I hate to say it, but I think the coastal region has the best food of the country and of all of the regions. One of my top three foods, I would say, is cazuela, which I think that translates roughly to like casserole. Mm, like cazuela de mariscos, you mean? Yeah, cazuela de mariscos. There's okay. like different variations, but in Ecuador on the coast, they have a the cazuela, the casserole um, with different like tuna or seafood or shrimp. And it's kind of like a thick paste type consistent consistency, which doesn't make it sound very appetizing, but it really is good. And they mix it with peanut butter and they serve it with like limon on top and a little bit of like salsa. And it's just so delicious and like very filling too. It's pretty cheap. Um, so I would say like that's probably that was probably one of my favorite dishes. My host mom would make it pretty often too. So I, I always loved eating her food. She ate very health healthily too. Another one would be pan de yuca y yogur. So that was really pop popular on the coast too. Um, yuca, or I think like the English term is cassava. Basically, it's like a little like bread ball with cheese and yuca all like mixed up together. And then they like fry it or they bake it. Um, and then they, they serve it with like a yogurt drink, kind of like a smoothie type drink. And I was obsessed. Like, I swear I knew like my pan de yuca person in my neighborhood, like, I like would feel embarrassed sometimes because it'd be it would be like my fourth time going in to the restaurant to like get the pandayuca and yogurt that week and like they knew my order I always got like three pandayucas and then a mango flavored yogurt drink like they would basically have it ready for me that was one of my favorite foods and then ceviche mixto and I would get it manabita style so manabi is one of the provinces on the coast of Ecuador um, and they're known for their peanuts and their peanut butter. And so with the ceviche, like with different seafoods, they would put like a big heaping spoonful of peanut butter in it, which I've like talked to other people about it who are not familiar with like that style of ceviche. And to them, it just sounds kind of off-putting, but it is so good. Like next time you guys have the opportunity to have ceviche, try it with smooth peanut butter. It's delicious. And it's served with chifle, which is like fried plantain chips. And it's just amazing, honestly, like thinking about it right now, I just, I, I wish I could have some. <laughs> um, did you learn how to make any of those? I think pande, we also, we also have pan de yucas here, but I think they're a little bit different. Okay. It's kind of similar to pan de queso in Colombia too. 
Oh, okay, okay, okay. Were you able to uh, learn how to cook any of those dishes that you just mentioned? I did not personally make them, um, but like my host mom, she often made cazuela and pan de yuca. So I didn't like make it myself, but like I observed her and she would, I'm not like a great cook or anything. So she definitely had to like teach me how to cook some of the things, but not specifically those dishes, which is honestly like, it's fine by me because I would just let the experts make it, just be able to enjoy the food. But I should try, I should try to make pan de yuca. I think that would be like one of the easier dishes I could try to make here in the States. Yeah. Have you had any Ecuadorian food since you uh, go back to the States? I have not, sadly. It's just been so hard with COVID, like restaurants not being open and then like social distancing. So I, I haven't had the opportunity, but I'm in Texas now. So there's definitely more of like a Latin flavor in the in the local cuisine. And so I'm going to be on the lookout for that. Actually, you know, that now that I think about it, I did buy frozen pan de yuca at a grocery store when I was in Florida, but it was not good. It was not the same at all. It was actually yeah, really disappointing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. It's definitely not the same. Yes. <laughs> it's, it tastes like rubber, basically, because, you know, it's frozen and it doesn't matter if you put it in the oven or you fry it. It's just like the texture and the consistency and the flavor is just, it loses it all. Not at all the same. Yeah. So that was pretty disappointing, I have to say. It was like another kick while I was down being back in the States. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I found for the yucas, but they're frozen. I, they don't taste anything like in Guayaquil. <laughs> okay, so we know you had a little bit of a bougie side, you know, you had... Little? It was hugely bougie. Don't Don't be nice. Don't be nice. <laughs> Oh my God, Selena, stop it. Don't call me out. You can blame her. I didn't choose it, okay? Yeah, exactly. You can blame her. But anyways, were there like any tasks or chore that you had to do that you really, really enjoy it? Or was there anything that you, you just dragged your feet to do? Yeah, so you guys are going to hate me because, <laughs> like I said, I was in a very urban site. My host mom was, um, she was a little older in her 70s. She had two women who would come to the house like a few days a week to cook and to clean. So no, I did not have to do any chores aside from just wash my own clothing. But like they would make my bed, they would sweep and vacuum, they would cook. I cooked most of my own meals just because like that would just be my preference. But my host mom would, she would just always have food in the house that like her, her cooks and maids would, would prepare for the house. So I was really lucky because one of the women that would come to work in our, in our house was from, she was from Esmeraldas and they're just known for having really delicious food. It's, it's also on the coast, another province there in Ecuador. And so she would make these very delicious meals that are typical of Esmeralda. Yeah, it, it, I just got very lucky in being able to eat like very authentic, delicious cuisine prepared for me. Um, but no, I, I really didn't have any chores to be completely honest with you guys. Because like I said, like we had people coming in to help out around the house. Well, I can't blame you because that's my current life right now here in Colombia. We do have somebody, Senora Rosita, and she spoils me rotten. So <laughs> these, yeah, like these women had been working for my host mom for, I think, over 10 years. Like they were basically part of the family. They would come in the mornings and like have cafecito with my host mom. And it was basically like extended family coming. But then they would also like help clean up around the house. So I was lucky in that way. But that was not not at all typical of like other volunteers experiences. 
Yeah, I could see that being very nice, but it just shows how different a Peace Corps service can be because, like, for us in the con- rural countryside in, like, Madagascar, like, yes, we could have hired someone to help us, but we chose not to. And um, it would have been more because we didn't have a host family. So it's not like that whole, like, relationship thing. It would have definitely been more of, like, hiring someone to do it and not as probably a friendly feel. Like, of course, you'd become friends, but it would have been completely different. Um, but it just shows how different it is by country and just by sight. Because, like, as you just said, even in different areas within your own country, like, people didn't experience what you did. Yeah, and I will say it was, like, it was a little odd because I was never used to having someone come and, like, cook and clean for the house. You know, it's it definitely is, like, an adjustment. And, and I'm like, oh, no, but, like, I can make my bed. Like, it's okay. Like, you don't have to do that. But she's like, no, no, like, that's what I'm supposed to do. And so it was interesting to kind of navigate that as, like, an outsider and my host mom was just so accustomed to that because they had been, you know, part of her life there helping out around the house for so long. Um, But for me, it was a very different experience, kind of like allowing them to do that, I guess. Yeah, I I, I totally understand you because growing up here in Colombia, we always had somebody like taking care of us, you know, like cooking our meals and cleaning. And then I left and then, then I was on my own my whole life for 18 years. So I had to do everything in Madagascar was like, you know, intensified the things like the shorts that I had to do and then coming back and having Rosita like doing my bed and I actually had to forbid her to do so because I would feel so bad I was like Rosita no I can't honestly I have two hands I can do my own bed and like even cleaning my bedroom is like Rosita let me let me just do that because you know she takes care of the whole house and clearly my room is in the house but to me, it's still very difficult. Like, I love Rosita. She's so nice. And she's, uh, yeah, kind of part of yeah, the family, too. Yeah, I agree. But there are certain things that I just cannot. Oh, same. Like, de- yeah, allow or deal with. Yeah. But like, the cooking, I don't mind when she cooks so deliciously. And it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know. And then there's also, like, a little bit of guilt, too, because I just, I think, like, comparing my site to other sites. And it's like, I didn't sign up for Peace Corps to like have this experience to live in this apartment with like an elevator and there were doormen, you know, and having maids. But that was just like how it ended up. But I would at times kind of catch myself feeling kind of bad, like other volunteers would be talking about like getting eaten alive by bugs and stuff at their site. And I just had this like very well insulated apartment. And I didn't have to think about those things or like volunteers out in the Amazon, they would like post pictures in the WhatsApp group of like, a giant caterpillar or moth that they would see. And I was very much like far removed from that. It was just like a urban jungle. So to our our listeners, you can see that no two tales are alike. You know, you can be in the same country and your experience can be so widely different that just to whoever is out there thinking about Peace Corps, uh, just think that we are sharing these stories to bring light to what our service were like. But don't think that that's exactly how yours is going to be. You know, we just want to share a wide variety of like experiences around the con- the world. Uh, and Michelle's was definitely one of the bougiest ones we had so far. But still, she also got to experience great things and a great life in uh, Ecuador. Do you have any advice for people that are actually like considering doing Peace Corps as soon as Peace Corps volunteers back into the world out there? I would say do a lot of research. I don't think that Peace Corps should just be something that like one day you think about it and you're like, oh, let me apply because it doesn't cost anything. Like, no, I I really think that you should do a lot of research. And I exhausted like all forms of research. Like I looked at YouTube videos. I looked at hashtags on Instagram. I followed people in some of the countries that I was interested in um, applying to. 
I just like scoured the internet for different types of resources to really see like, what am I going to get myself into? Am I really committed to, to being in my community for two years? What am I okay with? What am I not okay with? And then I think it becomes more difficult. Like if you identify as part of a certain community, like LGBTQ plus, you know, there are considerations as well. Like, are you going to be able to be open at site? Is that something that's really important to you? Or are you okay with maybe not putting that in the forefront as part of your identity in site because it could be dangerous to you or have like negative impacts on your service? You really want to know what you're getting yourself into. And I think try not to have too many expectations. And I know that's really difficult, especially with just the ease of us as volunteers now in this day and age, being able to share our experiences on different forms of social media. Like it's so easy to like see a volunteer living their life at site and then thinking like that that's what your service is going to be like. You truly just do not know what your site's going to be like because you don't even know what site you're going to have yet. But I think it is helpful to prepare to kind of see what the wide range is. And so you kind of have an idea of like all of the different possibilities. Go into service with an open mind be willing to be flexible and also recognize your privilege uh, as an American um, going into another country. And just, I think, be really mindful of that. Like, you don't want to have the white savior mindset at all. I think do a lot of work on that, too, just to make sure that you're not kind of like perpetuating stereotypes or even looking down at other like cultures or societal norms in different countries. Wow, thank you so much for that. That's great advice, and it's definitely needed, and it's true. You shouldn't have expectations. But for our listeners, if you are interested in seeing some show notes and maybe a few pictures from Michelle's experience, uh, you can find them at our website at peacecorpsalespodcast.weebly.com. So yes, as Peace Corps volunteers, we are very uh, versatile and want free things. So we are using a free platform for our website, which is why it's weebly.com. How you spell weebly is W-E-E-B-L-Y.com. Also, if you're an RPCV and you're interested in being one of our interviewees, just like Michelle, uh, you can definitely go on there and we have an interest form that you can fill out so that we can contact you to get in touch. So thank you again, Michelle. It was so exciting and fun to hear your tale. It's been fun. Like, wow, you had such a different experience than us for sure. And I love that it's such a contrast because it just really shows how much difference there is between countries and just experiences. Well, I also want to thank you, Michelle. I had a lot of fun listening to your tell your experience in such a big city. I think that was the, the most shocking thing to me that you were put in a 2.7 million uh, city, you know, because mine had like 1,500 people. So just trying to picture that is like me going to surf, like, I don't know, in Medellin or Cali, and I can just, I cannot picture that. So it was really, really interesting. Thank you so much for like just being so willing and open to share every single thing that you shared during this uh, episode. It's true. Thank you guys for giving me this platform to kind of share my experiences too as a Peace Corps volunteer. And just remember that Peace Corps is the toughest job that you will ever have. Veluma Abby. Veluma everyone. <laughs> <laughs>